0: And it's in China's interest to conceal really big breakthroughs from us, in part because they can go steal the new idea or buy the new idea and bring it to China, not if they talk about it.
1: Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. It's so good that you're joining this week because we have a hard-hitting topic. But I just want to let you know, in spite of that hard-hitting topic, is we will ultimately talk about some solutions to it. We're talking about the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party by China with my new good friend and our senior fellow for China strategy, Dr. Michael Pillsbury. If you have not become familiar with Michael Pillsbury, this show will be a great introduction because we're going to talk about a recent book of his. We're going to talk about a new book project he has. But most importantly, we're going to equip you— with the information you need to understand why China is the existential threat to America and to free people around the world. All of that to say, Dr. Pillsbury, thanks for joining me. Thank you. In spite of all that, you're smiling. Yes. And that's probably because of some experience, which we'll get into. And you know, I'm a Southerner. I like to start with people's stories. And so especially because we have a hard-hitting topic here, a great book to talk about, your new book project, how, in the wide world of sports, did you become what I would say is the leading expert on China among Americans today?
0: There's many different answers to that question. We want the right one. I was born in California, Northern California. Lots of Chinese in San Francisco, felt very comfortable with Chinese food and people my, in my young years. Went to Stanford, got tricked by a professor who had put the word out that his class was an easy A, your girlfriend could come and take notes for you, you get five credits, one-third of a course, of a quarter. And so I did it, and I then went on to get a Ph.D. in China Studies at Columbia and work with practical people like Big Brzezinski and others. And about almost 40 years went by, I ran into this same professor at Stanford who tricked all of us that it were an easy A. I said, I really feel guilty. I apologize. I became a China expert. He said, yes, I know. You're my best student of all time. I said, yes, but I had guilt because this is why I took your course. And he said, you fell into my trap. I wanted the elite young students at Stanford to get more interested in China. So I spread the word easy A if you take my course. <laughs> That's quite a st- true story. <laughs> That's a lesson for us. He was a career diplomat who later on was in the Philippines. So he was interned when the Japanese took over the Philippines and then wrote a book afterwards called Asia in the Modern World. And at this time, it was the number one textbook for Asia and China studies in America. So it was a great honor. He had big, white, bushy hair and that manner of an ambassador. (laughs) So my dream was to be ambassador to China. And then in President Trump's last year, I got a letter. Dear Dr. Pillsbury, you will be nominated to be ambassador to China in President Trump's second term. Sincerely yours, White House Personnel Office. So I framed the letter. I hope that's not as, the closest I'll ever get. So that's still an It yeah, Very much, yes. Because Mandarin Chinese takes years to learn. And I got pretty good at it. I was in a program for two years in Taiwan where they make you promise— Uh, You will not speak English for two years. And the program still exists. Now it's been moved to Beijing, but it's known as the Stanford Center. And that oath is still on the website if you want to go to that place. So you can get pretty good at Mandarin. The thing is you start dreaming in Mandarin. People in your dream are speaking Chinese to each other, and you can understand it. Now that's strange. That that has to be very strange. So I want to come back to what you would do if,
1: in fact, you get the opportunity. Uh Uh-huh to become ambassador to China, whether under President Trump or some other conservative president. But you're still a young guy, but there's some intervening time from Mm -hmm. when you earned your PhD in China Mm -hmm. Studies at Columbia to that last Mm -hmm. year of of Trump's presidency. I happen to know you worked on the Hill. You were very active in China policy. But give our audience who may not be as familiar with those years of Mm -hmm. your career a sense
0: of how your
1: expertise developed.
0: Sure. In the book, 100-Year Marathon, there's some things that are redacted for what they call security reasons. And I thought my career in the government would be open and I could put it in the book. And I found out that's not true. So I had to read they had redacted upon threat of seizing the book and pulping it. They redacted some stuff about my government career. Is this your way of saying I'm not going to answer your question? I know. <laughs> I'm going to answer. But basically when you have a PhD and you can speak Mandarin, the government comes to you. Various parts of the government come knock on your door and say, would you like to work for us? And you compare what would you be doing, you know, and one of them, I still remember this very vividly. The CIA analytical side came to me and said, there's something called the SRS, the Special Research Service, or whatever it was called. And you will write high-level things for the President of the United States about the Sino-Soviet relationship, what Dr. Kissinger's been trying to start, And I said, can you show me where I'd be sitting? And they walked me over to a room about the size of this studio. And there were six analysts in it and one empty desk, no windows. I thought, wait a minute, I'm from California, blue sky, fresh air, surfing. No, this is not for me. And I've always regretted that because some of the best work ever done in our government on understanding China came out of this small little cell, the SRS. And some very famous people worked there. And then they had to scatter the dust on the trail that they never did work there. I actually got one letter from CIA. I had asked for some material. And I got a letter back saying, Dear Dr. Pillsbury, thank you for your inquiry. Any relationship between you and this agency, comma, if there is a relationship, comma, would be highly classified. <laughs> That's so telling. It left me confused. (laughs) If there is a relationship, I'm confused. But obviously, CIA is a place to learn a great deal about China. The second best place is the RAND Corporation, which was created in 1947 to deal with the rise of the Soviet threat. And it was part of a lot of things that happened in 1947, which we ought to think about now in terms of China. In terms of China policy... We pretty much have the same size teams at State, Defense, Commerce, White House as we had 30 or 40 years ago. With 1947 and the Soviet threat, think about what happened. We created the U.S. Air Force. We created the Central Intelligence Agency. We created the National Security Council. None of these things existed. It was all because of the threat from Russia. The term Cold War hadn't been used yet. But that would later on become to be called the Cold War, and nuclear delivery vehicles and how they, who was ahead. That was a crucial thing in presidential debates. When President Reagan defeated President Carter, I was a Reagan campaign advisor, and he got what's oh, a good word for it focused on the why this salt treaty should not be confirmed. Jimmy Carter was going to confirm it, so he attacked. Carter fought back and tried to portray Reagan as a warmonger. And Reagan said from the talking points we gave him, actually, Senator John Glenn, of the famous astronaut and Democrat of the Senate Armed Services Committee, has said it's not verifiable. And he had a series of examples like this, and it embarrassed Carter and showed him to be on the left of the Democratic Party. And There's only one debate in that campaign. And that debate was largely about the nuclear balance, arms control, Soviet cheating, Soviet activities around the world. We don't do that about China. There's the uh, debates, both the primaries and the general elections, the last 10 years or so, China has not been a big focus. And I presume that wanting to
1: get Americans, whether they be elected officials or people in other influential positions, business, education but also regular Americans mm-hmm. focused on China, is what prompted you to write this book.
0: That's exactly That's right. Exactly
1: Which right. I will just say, I'm not just being polite as a Southerner. It is It's a life-changing book in this way. And I read it for the first time, and I was going through it for the third or fourth time this morning, thinking about what I might ask you from it. It occurred to me that it changed my thinking, because... As someone who thought that America, given its values, given its free enterprise influence, Mm -hmm. could turn China into America, when I constructively criticize other people on the right for being stuck in an old position, it's the old position that I'm referring to, but I hopefully am encouraging to move along in the same way that I was small-minded about it. Your book is the tool to make that happen, and so all of that to lead to this question, Mike, and it is, why this book? for what I presume is mostly an American audience. It's now a few, at least a few years old, but it's still timeless.
0: It's not just for an American audience. It sold, it sold more copies in the translation into Japanese. That's telling. <laughs> and it was translated by a company called Nikkei, which we have no equivalent, but it's like Rupert Murdoch, Wall Street Journal, New York Post, Fox News. Nikkei is like that in Japan. So they had me go on a book promotion tour and go on all these shows and appear in all these uh, newspapers, it quite quickly became number two on the Japanese hit list. There's an Indian translation in Hindi. It it has come out in Mongolian. I've been to Mongolia (laughs) to promote it, because they're quite worried about the China. South Korea, Vietnam, translation sold very well. And what is basically going on here is, this is somebody who is an insider saying, we including me, made mistakes on China, and here's why. Now, I still remember when it was going through a security review and the the editing process, and one of the editors called me. He had a very thick English accent. He said, you don't know me. I'm editing your book. He said, I just wanted to tell you, sir, I've edited books for 15 years by government officials like you, and they always try to make themselves look good. This is the first book I've ever read by a senior official where he admits almost every page. The mistakes that he and various presidents made. The president and in good faith, right? President Reagan sold torpedoes to China, Mark 46 high-tech torpedoes for their submarines, and said his Secretary of the Navy, John Lehman, a very conservative member of the Reagan administration. He was honored to deliver these torpedoes, and it's in his memoir. <laughs> now, of course, everybody knows that was a mistake. But I try to show in the book the framework we all thought we knew. That China is our friend, partner, could even replace Great Britain, United Kingdom, as a special relationship, and they were going to help us win the Cold War, which in some ways they did. What we didn't grasp is after they were finished with the Soviet Union being cut in half in terms of geography and population both, they would turn to us as the next obstacle to what they call returning to China's rightful place in the world. For 2,000 years, they're number one. So we were in the way. Even though we were partners against the Soviet Union, that pretty much ground to a halt. And on our side, nobody, including me, got this. We thought friendship, democracy, somehow, they had these little village elections that Jimmy Carter backed with money. (laughs) The Carter Center, you can believe this, the Carter Center in Georgia was sending teams to Chinese villages to teach them how to vote. They even published a manual of the Ministry of the Interior in Beijing for how to conduct votes. That was what everybody thought, including Governor, not Governor, President Reagan. He gave me a job on his transition team and then working for him in the Pentagon as the director of policy planning for the whole Pentagon. So I brought this view that China and the Defense Department should increase our collaboration. So it makes a good story. I'm glad you liked it. No, it
1: It resonated with me and other friends I know who read it, who I think every American conservative thought that China was a friend. And so that, that leads to this question. At what point do you realize we, we were collectively mistaken?
0: Some people, and part of me, still has the wishful thinking dream that if we did the right thing somehow, we could still split the Communist Party in China we could have happen what happened with Gorbachev and Yeltsin. Remember, they, Yeltsin, put the Communist Party of the Soviet Union on trial and for a year under this thing called the Constitutional Court. Now, the Chinese know all about this, and Xi Jinping tells his people, be careful, because what the Americans did to the Soviet Union, they want to do to us. And all of you guys will be put on trial the same way Yeltsin put the Communist Party on trial in Moscow. So, the party actually lost the case. For a while, all their assets, all the Russian Communist Party assets were taken away, and they were called a criminal mafia organization by some of the judges. Now, obviously, Putin undid all that, but this is the big threat now for China. The Americans will try to split the Communist Party, put it on trial, replace it, and have some sort of democracy and then not have a Vladimir Putin step up and say, okay, I'll take things from here. So there were some moments when I had my doubts about China. But who can promise that if we did the right things now, we could still make China come out all right? Now, it could be a war. could be they have to be defeated, trying to invade and conquer Taiwan. Then Xi Jinping and his team become ashamed, attacked. The hardliners try to kick him out. The soft liners try to stop. So the prospect of a civil war inside China is something I've actually written about, and I tried to get it in the book, but that was one of the places where <laughs> someone, someone said, and I my appeal was, look, this is just a speculation about what might happen in China in the future and what we should do in the middle of a civil war in China, or some version of it, which we've done before, 1900, is a famous movie called 55 Days in Peking, which is relatively accurate. It has David Niven, Charlton Heston, Ava Gardner. <laughs> and our troops are moving into Beijing to stop the siege and then try to put in a new government. And when you visit the huge museum in Beijing, which Xi Jinping took his Politburo, as soon as he was elected, he told his Politburo, we're all going on a trip. They thought, what kind of trip is that? It was to go across town to the greatest museum in the world. It's the largest museum in the world. And there's an exhibit there called The Restoration of China to its Proper Role. And on the wall, when you first come in, there's a map used by American soldiers to occupy Beijing in our little zone. I did not know that. We actually occupied Beijing for almost a year and a half. All these negotiations went on. In the terms of the treaty, imagine this for today. This is a 1900. This is 1900. The boxer expedition is known as. The treaty said, we'll go home. We, the Americans, the Japanese, the other of the eight nations occupying Beijing, we'll leave. But you have to execute the cabinet ministers who supported the boxers or are not leaving. This is a sovereign nation. And by the way, you're going to pay us the equivalent of $1 trillion in reparations for what you did to the missionaries. The Chinese accepted and signed, but this has always been a point they hold against us. And I say, that was Charlton Heston. That's just a movie. But that's not quite true. It's pretty accurate. It is pretty accurate. Yes.
1: And back to the earlier point about your desire always to be the ambassador to China. Yes. If that opportunity were to present itself and you became ambassador,
0: what would your approach be? The first problem is that it's the largest American embassy in the world. If you go to the website of U.S. Embassy Beijing, it tells you we have a staff of 2,300 people. Now, that's a big embassy. it's a lot of people. Then it says there are 50 U.S. government agencies here inside the embassy. Now, we can tick off the State Department, all right. CIA fine because we have intelligence cooperation with China. It's discussed in the book. FBI okay. DA talk about fentanyl drugs maybe. That's four. What are the other? What are the other forty-six agencies doing there? And I happen to know what they're doing. And it needs a presidential review, where I, as ambassador, would ask for time in the Oval Office with the president and his team. And I would go over, we don't need all 50 of these agencies there, and many of them are helping Chinese growth, economic growth. And yes, there's some areas of cooperation, cancer research, we'd like to borrow their data on cancer research, but basically, it's not a good balance. We are helping China far more than they are helping us. In fact, Mr. President, they are undermining us in quite a few ways around the world. I think that's what I would begin with. Uh, and then there's a question of those, after the turnover of people, what would the remaining staff do? And there is another interesting set of agreements. Very little known in our country that the National Science Foundation, which funds a great deal of the most science research in our country, at various universities and labs, comes from the National Science Foundation. Well, they have a series of agreements, which Rex Tillerson renewed, to share American scientific findings, American scientific discoveries, to immediately share them with China. And we have an office in our embassy in Beijing with someone called the Minister Counselor for Science. And the Chinese are known to nag him. We just read about this something new and you haven't brought the plans to us yet and how it works. And the guy has to apologize, say, I'm very sorry. Let new do scientific... Di- and there are lots of examples, you're from Texas, you know, about prairie roots of the grass being deep enough so the wind doesn't blow it away. We made some really important agricultural science breakthroughs on that. Now, China has a massive prairie that's blowing away with these massive winds that come in from Mongolia. You'd think we'd go, okay, sorry, too bad. Or maybe for $10 billion, we can share with you our prairie grass protection Secrets. No, we gave them away for free to China, but nothing in return. Shall we do this every day, mainly through the embassy in Beijing? Same thing with the fentanyl talks. You may have noticed as punishment for Nancy Pelosi's trip, the Chinese announced they're breaking off these ten committees that the U.S. and China ch- channel all problems through. One of them, climate change, obviously, with John Kerry. Another one is on the fentanyl talks because Trump got the Chinese to put it on the controlled substance list, but not actually stop the precursors. So that committee's ceased operating. Here's all the Biden White House receiving criticism for fentanyl, killing every day so many tens of thousands. And the Chinese suspend the. T- I would think we wouldn't give the prairie grass scientific breakthrough while at the same time taking hits on other committees. I would think a more, I hate to say tough, that's too tough, but a more disciplined approach to how we deal with China, where the president of the United States would feel that he understands the overall negotiations going on. There's give here and take there. That isn't happening now. No president. President Trump tried, but he quite quickly said, the deep state doesn't want my new China policy. I said, yes, sir, Mr. President. I think that's a good summary. (laughs) It's it's that simple.
1: So there's a real absence of leadership. Best case scenario. It's
0: just too hard. It's just too hard. We're so involved with the Chinese in so many ways. I call it addiction in the book, Hundred Year Marathon. That's why my last chapter is called the 12 Steps, meaning to break the addiction, we need to take these 12 steps. But most of them still haven't been taken.
1: There's a lot of work for us to do. I just want to highlight something near the beginning of the book, but I want to get to your 12 Steps, just to give a sense to our audience of the scale of the problem that the, the, these are the nine principal elements of Chinese strategy. Mm-hmm. I think very few Americans, including very few members of Congress, appreciate this. I think an increasing number of mm-hmm. members of Congress in both parties are, in no small measure, a result of your work. But just a sample, you have several of these. This is the Chinese strategy. Induce complacency to avoid alerting your opponent. Check. They've done that. Manipulate your opponent's advisors. Check. (laughs) This is the thing that I knew. This is ancient history. Exactly. And I was just about to say that as a historian, but an early American historian, Uh I've never taught Chinese history, but have a certain understanding of it. This is something that Americans don't apprehend. Be patient for decades longer to achieve victory. Americans, for good and for ill, are very short-term strategic thinkers, Mm -hmm. including in foreign policy. The Chinese are the opposite. And this is a very different kind of adversary than we're faced in our history. Also, steal your opponent's ideas and technology for strategic purposes. This is what set off President Trump, among other things, the trade deficit, too. So, military might is not the critical factor for winning a long-term competition. Great. Home in on that for us, because so much of the rhetoric now is about America, perhaps relative to Taiwan, and giving them munitions to to beef up its own military might to confront China. Mm -hmm. That's not the whole story.
0: No, and... I spent many years in the Pentagon, so in theory, I should be thinking weapons are everything. You know, if we back the right side, or in the case of Ukraine, if we give them the right weapons in a very timely way, this will solve the problem. That's not the Chinese view. They look back on the founding of their top six dynasties. A good dynasty would last 300 years, and usually they would expand. But the Chinese focus on the story of how each new emperor fooled the old emperor by saying, I'm not a threat. I want to help you. I want to be in a coalition with you. Let's have an exchange program. Gee, would you like to marry my sister? These are all stories, which frankly are in my next book. (laughs) Because I believe Americans need to be able to decode or decipher A lot of these Chinese proverbs go back to how dynasties were created in the past. But the military, if they expanded their military a lot over the last 30 years, everybody would have awakened to the China threat. So they falsified their defense budget. They probably cut it by half when they presented it in public. They kept highly secret when they would test something. And our capability to understand those things was very limited. We did understand, and they would tell us wonderful platitudes, like we know you have nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. Each of your carriers has four nuclear reactors that drive it more than 30 knots. China will never have aircraft carriers because that's an imperialist hegemon weapon system. And they would throw in military bases. You Americans have 500 or more military bases around the world. China will never have even one overseas military base because that is what a hegemon will do. And it's in our constitution of China that we will never seek to become a hegemon. I had to sit through hundreds of hours of this tutorial, shall we say, by the Chinese military to me. And I would write it down, fast forward 15 years, three aircraft carriers. The first one, they told us, was a casino. They bought it from the Ukraine. It took several years to bring it out. They put it in the harbor, and I actually went to it. They said, this is going to be a museum or a casino. (laughs) No, it's their first aircraft carrier. So they're quite sensitive to not stimulate the sense of a China threat in a country like ours. That is, we're the old hegemon they've got to overthrow to return to their rightful place. So, they do believe the military is important in decisive matters at the end of a 10- or 20-year campaign, including how they took over China. Yes, there were decisive battles, 1948-49. They defeated Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists, brilliantly, using deception. But first, they made sure to cut off American military support to Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists. And our great hero... George Marshall, nobody knows this story. They know George Marshall, planner of World War II, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, one of the greatest American statesmen of all time, George Marshall. He was sent on a mission by Harry Truman who, with a very clear, now declassified, and in my next book, very clear orders, bring the nationalists and communists together so we have a unified China and the Soviets can't meddle in it And George Marshall began to send cables back, eyes only through a special channel to Harry Truman. And then one was his meeting with, with Mao. Mao said, we'll change the name of our Communist Party. We're much more like America than Russia. We have no contact with the Soviet Union. And actually, I'd like to visit Washington and meet Franklin Roosevelt was the first message, and then Harry Truman. So, Marshall believed all this and his leverage was to cut off aid and issue orders to limit the nationalists and Chiang Kai-shek and a biography of Mao explains this in great detail with all kinds of new documents that it worked. So within the last six months of the Civil War, the Chinese communists went from almost no support, less than 100,000, to a three million person army and won. Notice what I'm saying though. It were the weapons that important, or was it getting the Americans to cut off aid and weapons and money to our allies who are now on Taiwan? That's how they did it, and almost no Americans know the story. Everybody at the senior levels of the CCP and the PLA knows the story very well. How easy it is to fool the Americans if you start where you start at the top, try to deceive the president through special channels that he has.
1: The Chinese were very successful there. We could, given your knowledge, spend a few hours talking (laughs) about—no, really, several hours—talking about China and history just in the last 70 or 80 years. But one question I want to get to is the extent of Chinese influence domestically here in the United States. What I have seen making a political statement or a political observation about the policy shift is— It's that growing awareness by members of Congress, by Mm. everyday Americans—President Trump deserves a lot of credit for this, you yourself do—about China's influence in the United States that has caused Americans to begin to wake up, Mm. threat posed by them. How extensive is
0: it? How extensive is Is the waking up? Is
1: the influence of China
0: here? Oh, it's enormous. It's enormous. And it's done in a number of ways that remind me of the ancient— dynasties trying to, there's a Chinese term, if you want to learn a fun Chinese term, it's ma bi. Ma bi. Ma, my rising tone, bi, falling tone. Ma means numbness. The Chinese believe that there's a flavor called numbness. So when you eat Sichuan food, if your tongue goes numb, that's ma. B means to paralyze or to prevent. Ma bi together, to numb someone so they're paralyzed this is the Chinese influence strategy toward the United States. So they do two things. They focus on anybody who says China's a threat. And if they can punish that person, or their company, or their family, they will do it. They've now banned about 30 Americans. They've announced the names of 15 of the 30. I'm not one of them, for some reason. I've been warned. But Mike Pompeo, banned for yeah, life. I know is banned for life. And anybody, a lot of the cabinet secretaries under Trump, the undersecretary for economic affairs, Keith Kroc, and they, it was explained that they violated Chinese sovereignty. This is why they're banished for life. And any company they work for also cannot visit China, their law firm or their investment firm. So they punish China threat people in various ways. On the other side, they reward really handsomely those who help China. And one of the best examples, there are two really good examples who have written about it a lot in their own words. One is Hank Polson, Secretary of the Treasury, who wrote a book called Dealing with China. And he tells how he created China Telecom and Huawei by showing the Chinese Prime Minister, we will float, you bring all these companies together, because they don't have antitrust, then we, Goldman Sachs, will float this for, I don't remember, four to six billion dollars. And he says, the Chinese, Hank says this in his book, the Chinese premier couldn't believe it. You Wall Street capitalists will give us five billion dollars if we put our phone companies together for equipment manufacture around the world? Yes. And then Hank jokes. He said, but there's one thing you must not do, you must not do this initial offering through Morgan Stanley. You must do it through Goldman Sachs, which they did. So Hank gets all kinds of special treatment. He sees the leaders of China. He just wrote an article in Foreign Affairs saying we shouldn't overdo the China threat. Yes, there's a few bad things that they do, but a great statesman will rise above the desire to have a Cold War. This is really, right now, this is a big theme. No Cold War with China. Only bad people want a Cold War with China. The other great American has also written five books about his visits to China, of course, is Dr. Henry Kissinger. And he, changed who I worked for at different points, and he did something very interesting. After his first four books about China and how he'd built trust and how smart the Chinese leaders were and gailiness with every single conversation he ever had, 50 trips, including after, obviously after he was Secretary of State. But then his new book in 2011, just called On China, has a chapter at the end. It seems he says that there are hawks in China, which of course he learned from me, frankly. There are also hawks in Washington, D.C. If the hawks get in power in either capital, let alone in both, there could be a World War I-style war of unfathomable consequences. So at least he's a little bit like 100-Year Marathon. He's saying well, maybe we didn't, maybe we overly trusted our Chinese friends.
1: It sounds like it. You summarize this well. I want to lead into your 12 steps and then if you're optimistic about America confronting this problem. But this is what you say. Toward the end of the book, for more than two decades, the United States has been the world's only superpower. America's military is without equal, as is its economy for now. The world watches America's movies, sings America's pop song, drinks America's soda, eats at America's chain restaurants, studies at American universities, and so on. It is time to start imagining the world, now I'm paraphrasing, where America doesn't have that influence. And by 2050, China's economy will be much larger than America's perhaps three times larger, according to some projection, the world could then be a unipolar one, with China as the global
0: leader. What are the chances of that happening? Seventy percent, give or take. We are doing an excellent job of confusing ourselves about China. For every red-blooded China threat theory person, there are about ten on the other side. And I'll give you an idea of some of their arguments. They don't say, oh yeah, China should rule the world. That's a very rare point of view. What they say is the biggest objection to what I argue and others argue is China's going to collapse. And when our military planners hear this, and this has happened in the real world with me, they're starting to build a new weapon system, let's say. This first began in the mid-90s. There were a series of weapon systems like the B-2 bomber, that would be good against China. They were capped at twenty in a discussion of how much of a threat is China. So, if you if you tell a military planner your big threat is going to collapse in five years, why why waste our time? Why waste a trillion dollars on new weapon systems with a guy that's going to collapse as our threat? So that's really damaging. That's very popular in conservative circles, and the way they put it. China doesn't have God. They're atheists. To be a member of the 95 million Communist Party, you've got to be an atheist. So without God, who's going to guide the Chinese? Number two, they don't have the free market. Why they can't innovate? Because they're all afraid of Communist Party discipline. They'll never be able to implement innovation. They'll just copy. And they'll so they'll lose. And then there's a lot more. Their cancer rates are really high. Their environmental pollution is the world's worst.
1: The effect of their one-child policy. That's, yeah,
0: yeah. that's another part one. Of this. How stupid can they be? And actually, that's the one-child policy choked off the fear they had at the time it was thought up in 78. They were told by their demographers, if you have unlimited birth in China, you're going to see 3 or 4 billion Chinese by in 30 years. And they had all these calculations, which we later on got copies of. So that's what, they scared themselves. So they changed that policy. But the the larger idea is with a one-man dictatorship trying to pick winners, this is just madness. And we Americans have always ruled the world because we don't do any of these things. We have religion and innovation and freedom and free market. (laughs) So we've talked ourselves into, if there is a China threat, it's not going to last very long. So all you have to do is get through the next few years, and we'll be okay.
1: Yeah, you hear (laughs) constantly in this town that the China threat has already dissipated.
0: Right. Why are you so worried? It's called the peak theory. China has peaked out. 2022, 2023, this is it. They're going to start. COVID is going to kill them all. And then if you just look at the last few days, the new GDP growth estimates, 5% or better, World Bank, IMF, Chinese themselves, You think, that's not much, 5%. No, in the long term, we, the great United States, we averaged 2.5% the last 70 years or more. So if they're going to be double or more our growth rate, they're going to continue to surpass us while telling us we're your friend. Now, Xi Jinping's hurt that a little bit. Cracked on the tech companies, Jack Ma disappears. But Xi Jinping is still careful. He never says... We want to surpass America and dominate the world. He will use these euphemisms, very clever euphemisms. Uh, he wants China to. He said this at Davos when Trump had just uh, was about to be inaugurated. Xi Jinping went to Davos and said, "China is the leader of the free trade movement in the world, and China just seeks to be closer to the center of the stage." That's a phrase he used. Wu Tai Zhongxin, Wu Tai is stage, Zhongxin is center. He's not saying we're going to dominate the world. He moved closer to the center stage. And now they've got a new theme the last few years. Because of your historian background, you appreciate history can be stolen and distorted. I've noticed that. <laughs> so Xi Jinping has now got a new version of history that they call it the Community of Common Destiny. Nobody can understand what this is in English. But it's basically... Chinese philosophy and Confucianism, are, uh, Chinese morals, are concerned with human benevolence and happiness is really superior to the West because the West bickers and quarrels and has wars. Sometimes they single out Dr. Chiron Skinner because she gave this famous interview to Anne-Marie Slaughter, her predecessor, saying if we have a Cold War with China, it'd be a lot more difficult because the Chinese are not in the Western civilization family. She also said they're not Caucasian, which is true, but a little bit racy for Washington, D.C. So Dr. Chiron Skinner gets attacked by other think tanks. John Hamry at CSIS sends out a note to all of his board members and scholars calling her a racist, Say this is a racist comment. Actually, it's China 101 that their civilization, their philosophy... Their history is different. Their language, for heaven's sake, is really different from us and from the Russians. So Chiron Skinner got punished in a way that should warn the rest of us. If you dare to think that China is different, you're going to be called a racist. And that's a big theme now in the Congress.
1: Yeah, by American institutions. Yes. Even if that accusation, as it is in that yes. case, Kyron, a, a heritage colleague, uh, African-American
0: woman, important to say. That's is, the irony. Well, irony. The irony. Here's an African-American yeah. woman being called a racist by an old white guy, John Amory. Well, welcome to modern America,
1: right? And what will have to be the last question in the interest of time, but we're going to just have to have you back many times <laughs> over the years, especially when you've got your new book coming out. Here's a statement. If America does X and Y, then I, Michael Pillsbury, am optimistic about America prevailing in this conflict. What do we need to do for you... Ooh. To wake up that day okay. saying, I'm more optimistic than you are as you sit here about the
0: threat from China. X, Y, and Z, that could be three okay. things. I knew you would be abusive. <laughs> <later>. That's <fine. laughs> One is educational. A heritage foundation can play a crucial role in the educational front. Just having, and already has, just having publications that shine a spotlight on Chinese behavior and then attempt to give an explanation if we want to stop this Let's say intellectual property theft or genocide against the Uyghurs. If we want to stop this is the kind of leverage we'll have to apply. It can't just be waving our hands. Heritage Foundation and elsewhere have to say these are the specific things. I mentioned the size of the embassy in Beijing. Export controls. There's quite a long list. Right now we have unlimited American investment can go into China. If you and I want to get together buy a billion dollar factory in China, teach them with artificial intelligence. No one's going to ask us about it from the US government. There's legislation is to block that. It hasn't passed. So that's the first thing. Second thing is we've got to get our own growth rate up. We can't just be turning in two point five percent a year average and expect to stay number one. But getting our growth rate up is really difficult because the economists don't know how to do that. And there are all these fights over whether this thing or that thing, economic policy, tax policy, the R&D credits, for example, which Heritage has talked about. This is ridiculous that we don't give tax credits for R&D expenditures. Chinese do that. Third thing is we don't have an index yet of how the U.S. and China are doing in the strategic competition. If you don't have a scorecard, you don't know who's ahead. And it's in China's interest to conceal really big breakthroughs from us, in part because they can go steal the new idea or buy the new idea and bring it to China. Not if they talk about it. So I've been advocating, the first thing I advocate in the 12 steps is there should be an index of U.S.-China competition. They are beating us in all kinds of categories. Some are funny. They drink more beer than America does. They surpassed us in beer drinking. Okay, not important strategically. But hypersonic missiles, supercomputers, number of nuclear weapons, they're starting to challenge us in number of nuclear weapons. This was the core of the Cold War. We don't see any real reaction. Some of our four-star generals are talking about it. One called it a strategic breakout. Now, that's really important. So in the index, we want the nuclear balance of power. But we would probably... 30, 50 indicators that we're watching that the public can go, oh my God, I had no idea. I thought we were number one forever. So that's one of the most important XYZ things I would do.
1: And we at Heritage are taking for action that all of those, but right now that that index, that scorecard, because awareness of this problem, I think is crucial for everyday Americans to understand the scope of the problem. And one of those metrics for success just as we wrap up here, will be this, that is, the China threat being a core focus of the 2024 primaries and general election. Dr. Michael
0: Pillsbury, thanks for joining me. I'm sorry I'm so long-winded.
1: No, as I told you, that's the whole purpose of the show. I'll speak for our audience that this was a wonderful conversation, and I'm really grateful for your work, for your being a great patriot, and especially grateful that you're here at Heritage as a senior fellow for China Strategy and senior advisor to the president, whoever he is. Thank you. It's my great honor. You bet. Thanks for joining The Kevin Roberts Show. It has been a wonderful conversation with Dr. Michael Pillsbury. We hope that you will join us next time for another hard-hitting but also optimistic show. Take care. (laughs) The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Phil Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.